You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Master Sergeant Brody Hall. Master Sergeant Hall, thank you so much for joining The Spear. Oh, no problem, sir. So to kind of kick things off, uh, can you can you give listeners uh, maybe a little bit about your military background? Uh, yes. So I uh, enlisted in the Army in 2005, uh, 2006, rather. Um, did basic OSU. Uh, Airborne school down at Fort Benning, and then I went to the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Italy in June of 06. Spent about seven years there, uh, anything from a rifleman all the way up to a sniper section sergeant before I left. Uh, I was an RI in Mountain Phase, 5th RTB for three years, and then platoon sergeant, 1st sergeant, 2nd brigade, 82nd airborne division before I came to the United States Military Academy Preparatory School in this year. Okay. So we're going to, so you've been an infantryman your entire career. When you joined the army, is that, I mean, did you come in knowing this is, this is the one and only thing I want to do in the army? Yep. Yep. Okay. Why was that? Uh, I mean, I, you know, I had uncles that were in the infantry in Vietnam. Um, and they always kind of like played a heavy role of, you know, influence in my life. Uh, it just, I, you know, from researching the branches before I enlisted, I mean, it just kind of everything I wanted to do was right there. So it's why I went for the infantry. And I mean, it was the best decision I ever made. Good. And did you want also to go to the 173rd in Italy? Uh, I mean, well, to be honest, at the time, I kind of expected to go to the 82nd. Uh, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't even know that, you know, Italy was a base at the time until I got orders at the end of basic training to go there after the completion of airborne school. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it was, it was a phenomenal assignment. How come was it? I mean, is it a, so we've had a few people uh, who spent time in the 173rd talk about it. It's just a great place to kind of um, develop professionally uh, as a soldier and as a leader. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, I, I would say I lucked out there. I mean, I had, for the most part, phenomenal leadership the seven years I was there. I mean, the the morale of that organization is unlike one that I've really seen since I left there. Uh, it just, and that, not just that, but I mean, the opportunities you have. I mean, you know, we were on again, off again on a deployment cycle when I was there. But, I mean, the opportunities you had there is, a, you know, a young soldier to be able to travel, see things in Europe, you know, things that I would have never seen growing up in Illinois. So, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a great assignment. Yeah. Um, so what was the deployment op tempo like at the time? So at that time, um, I mean, you were pretty much, we, you know, we did a 15 month, you know, seven, Oh eight, got back in July, Oh eight, left again, December 2009 came back December 2010 so I mean it was roughly about a year and a half almost off and then we go back uh it just depended on how what the length of the tour was but um we said when I was there we did a 15 month a 12 month and then the last one was she was 
the last one was a eighth month that we were over there. Iraq and Afghanistan? No, all three were to RCs in Afghanistan. Okay. So the third one, uh, the eight month one you mentioned, I guess that's the deployment that the the story we're going to, we're going to talk about today was from? Yes. Okay. Um, did it, you know, this was not only your third deployment, but your third deployment to RC East. Did that help at all going back to the same kind of, at least the, the general ale? So it was, a, uh, I mean, it was in the sense it was a familiar, um, region. Yes. I mean, this was, this was the third, uh, different area that I was in. I mean, the first one we were in, we were in Paktika province. The second one I was in Wardak and the last one we started off in Logar before we went down to Ghazni. So, I mean, I, even though I was in RCs the entire time, I mean, it was different, uh, provinces within RCs. Sure. Um, so the last one you said you started in Logar, uh, and then moved down to Ghazni. Yes. Okay. What was the terrain like in Ghazni? Cause I guess the, the, the story you're going to share was, took place in Ghazni. So what was that? What was the terrain like? So with where we were at Ghazni, um, most of it was, I mean, relatively was relatively flat for the most part, which was different than a lot of places I'd been before. I mean, you, you had, you know, ridgelines, mountain ranges going through it that, you know, obviously were steep in elevation, but I mean, most of the operating area we were in was relatively flat, you know, mixture of wadis, fields. Um, it was a great producing area. So there were a lot of grape huts dotting the landscape around the villages. So it was kind of a, a little bit more flat than it was mountainous, but kind of a mixture of both. And what was, um, you know, so, so you, you deployed in, I guess, kind of like late spring 2012. Um, how long before you moved down to Ghazni? We moved down to Ghazni around, if I recall, is between mid to late August. So, well, maybe about an early August, but we, we hadn't been there all that long um, prior to the action that took place. Uh, the first three months we were up in Logar, um, I had a couple of sniper teams with myself farther north. We had a sniper section at the time. Um, and then we were in around Fob Shank uh, up until we closed down uh, Fob Kerwar. And then shortly after that operation was over with, that's when we were sent down to Ghazni. We got detached from our brigade and attached a 4th Brigade, 1st Infantry Division. To Your battalion did? Yeah. Well, uh, it was battalion headquarters, a rifle company, support company, and then, I mean, my scout platoon was part of HHC, so HHC went with them. Okay. And you were, so you were in the scout platoon, you said you were a sniper section leader? Yeah. So what were, um, you know, once you get down to Ghazni and you said you were there for a, a few weeks, but at least before we, um, before the, like you said, the action that we're going to talk about, what was a, you know, what was a typical day? Like were you going out on, on patrols every day? Was, you know, was your, was your day, you know, especially unique because you were a sniper section leader? Uh, not, I wouldn't say especially unique. Um, you know, it kind of depending on what missions, you know, my teams were going out with. I mean, if, you know, one of my stronger senior snipers was going out with a, a recon team, I didn't necessarily always go with them just because I, you know, understood that this person that I was sending out, you know, knew was competent enough and experienced enough to be able to handle themselves and in terms of empowering the subordinate, you know, he wasn't necessarily someone I had to look over his shoulder every five seconds. Um, and I had two that were like that. I mean, my third one was very, very competent, um, very intelligent. It's just, he was very, very young in the army. So a lot of times when he would go out on missions, I'd go with him just to provide him support the best I could if, if he needed it. But I mean, I kind of had a freedom to kind of go out and pick his, you know, on patrols is, you know, I wanted to pick and choose, but I mean, for us as a scout platoon, I would say we were very, very fortunate in that our battalion commander utilized us kind of in the traditional role of a scout platoon. So 
we had a high up, we had a high op tempo in the sense that, you know, we were pushing out teams here or there to, you know, gain surveillance reconnaissance on different areas, but it wasn't like necessarily we were going out every day, like, you know, a rifle platoon patrolling. Okay. The, um, you know, so you were at what an E6 at the time or E5? I was a staff sergeant. Your staff sergeant. Okay. So, so compared to say your, your peers, um, in a rifle company who are probably squad leaders at the time, which means that, you know, they're responsible for, for a squad. And typically that squad is going to be, if they're, if they're going out, they're going out together. Is it difficult, you know, from an sort of an NCO leadership perspective, um, to be in that position of, of leadership, but be sort of detaching, you know, that you, like you said, send out individual snipers and, and teams out separately. Um, yeah, I mean a little bit, uh, you know, and that's kind of how, you know, that's how we trained before we went overseas. So, I mean, in the sense of knowing that's like, you know, what, uh, what was going to happen, you know, but at the same time, it was, it was very, it was very different when, you know, you actually sent out a team with a reconnaissance because we, anytime a sniper team went out, they were going out with a reconnaissance team. So, um, it was hard initially to kind of let go of that that control and allow my subordinate leaders, you know, empower them a little bit, um, and show that trust in them. And not that I didn't trust them. It's just, you know, they were mine and, you know, so it was hard to watch that happen at first, but, you know, all my, my peers that were the recon team leaders, I mean, they were all, you know, other NCOs that were very good and, and who I trusted very much to take care of my people. So, I mean, as time went on, it was one of those, never easy to kind of watch your people go out the wire. But at the same time, I knew that, you know, they were going to be taken care of and they were going to be, you know, they were going to make the right decisions. Sure. So September 12th, that's the day of, um, I guess the action that we're going to talk about. Um, so how did it, how did it start? What was the mission? So about a week prior to, um, the day of the action was when we got, uh, alerted by our battalion that they were sending the platoon down to attach to a, a company from 216 Infantry down in Macor, which has been kind of a it was a very it was an active area at the time, and uh, they were going south of the village to set up a joint support site for an ODA team and the Afghan National Army. Uh, so we got notified we started our initial planning uh and about three days if i recall prior was when they sent us up to to mccord to link in with the company um we we got to their cop got linked in with that with that company company commander and first sergeant uh and then we spent you know really the the next couple days doing uh planning rehearsals things of that nature and then the plan was for us to infill on the night of the 10th morning of the 11th to get oversight um of the proposed jss site and then bring in the company from that cop to you know to bring them in bring in the assets essentially you know go or no go if you know, if it was okay to move or not, uh, which they did, uh, on the morning of the 11th, they came, they came out, uh, we did a link up with them and their Afghan national army partners to start setting up the JSS. Did you say it was your entire, your entire platoon? Yeah, we had the, the entire scout platoon went out. I mean, we weren't necessarily all together in one position, but we, we maneuvered out and, you know, each recon team went to their proposed, you know, went to their location to get eyes on the different routes in and out the area, um, and overwatch the site. So what is that, um, 
can you, can you describe that in a little bit more detail for people who aren't familiar with the way that, um, that a recon team would work, the way that a scout platoon would work? Um, what is it? I mean, you separate into these areas, you know where the JSS is, about how far from the JSS are you positioning the teams or are the teams being positioned uh, in order to have effective overwatch? So, I mean, realistically, in a perfect world, you know, we would have, you know, with the optics that we have and the weapon systems we have, especially with the sniper rifles, you know, you, you typically would want, you know, as much standoff as you can within the limits of those optics and weapon systems you have. I mean, with the idea that you're not being seen. Uh, however, again, given the terrain that we had there it was relatively flat, you know, you didn't really have any kind of positions where you could put yourself based off of where we were going uh, so we were probably, each team was a, probably about a couple hundred meters, I can't remember off the top of my head, from the actual site. Because there was a kind of more vegetated wadi line that ran to the south of where we were putting in the JSS. So we had one team farther to the east that was overlooking uh, a road junction, about you know maybe five, six hundred meters from that road junction. Uh, team down south doing the same thing um, with a road junction down there. And then we had a team in the center that was overwatching that actual site that we were moving, that we were going to build the JSS at. I mean, typically, again, you know, when a scout team moves out, you know, you have your, your hide site, which is where your recon team leader is sitting with his RTOs, uh, a couple, you know, depending on train dependent, you know, behind the serve site, which is where the assistant team leader and the scout, one of the scouts, senior scout observer are going uh, to actually observe the site. But given, again, given the terrain that we had, the teams generally stayed intact. I mean, they, they created some separation between themselves, you know, based off of how we normally operate. But um, with, again, with the terrain we were given, you know, we had to make the use of what we had. Uh, I mean, the other thing with that, too, is, I mean, you know, we typically aren't moving in a platoon element, which we didn't necessarily move in a platoon element. Um, we kind of separated time and space between the times that, you know, each team was moving out. But, you know, in a sense, it was almost kind of like operating sort of as a normal rifle platoon. Um you know, just obviously that we weren't. Okay. Um, and so you move out during period of darkness and you just keep eyes on overnight just to make sure that there's nothing going on in advance of the, the company showing up the next morning. Yeah. I mean, you know, conducting surveillance on the different sites, you know, I mean, we were, you know, one to see if, you know, what the patterns of life were looking like at night you know, see if anybody was out and about, if you will, um, you know, and just generally collecting information on what each location kind of looked like, you know, because I mean, you have, you know, you may have maps, you have aerial imagery, you have, I mean, you know, if you're getting information from local nationals, I mean, there's, there's all these different, you know, that's if you can trust them, but I mean, you know, you, there's these, all these different, you know, ways of looking at, positions but it's completely different when you're on the ground because you can see the little micro terrain the little nooks and crannies that you're not getting from an overhead photo um so looking at what these things are you know iding the site seeing if it's suitable for what the proposed plan was you know what kind of standoff the site was given things like that okay so then the next morning the company uh shows up the full company correct yeah well so they had an advanced platoon come out on foot um, and then they had another platoon following and then another one came in with their uh, MRAPs. Okay. And then what? So we conducted initial link up uh, with that first platoon, second platoon, their second platoon started coming up Um and in the midst of that, to the east, once those platoons relieved our uh, our recon teams at the different positions, we collapsed in on ourselves. 
uh, as a, you know, because those platoons took those positions. And the one to the east with their Afghan partners, they had they took probably about, about three or four minutes of of contact. Uh, and I mean, to be completely honest, I don't really, I never really did get like a full picture of what happened with that one, but, um, what was supposed to happen is, you know, we'd set up, you know, they, we hand over, they set up the 360 security on the position and then they bring in, you know, the other platoon with the gun trucks and the, the engineer assets to start building the JSS. But once that initial contact happened, um, they, they still brought all those pieces up, but for whatever, whatever decision from higher came down, uh, we ended up, so right across from where the JSS was supposed to be, there was a school, a little three building school, uh, gated school that, we had built, I think, if I recall, it was built back in 2006. It was right across the street that was abandoned. So they kept us with them. We were supposed to leave. Uh, and they they pushed the essentially the company CP over into that school. We started expanding the perimeter. And they started the initial the initial construction. Um probably about, I think it, was, it had to been about midday. Uh, and they started you know, working through most of the afternoon and we had positions, uh, you know, observation positions, gun positions up on top of the buildings of the school. Cause you had one that was facing to the north, one was facing the east, one was facing to the west, and then the south was the, the gate. And probably around, it was probably about 1700 was when the first major contact we took at that position started um and where were you at that time i was uh i was up on top of the roof if i recall um essentially serving as a i don't want to say sergeant of the guard but for our platoon i guess you could say sergeant of the guard um, sure just making sure the the few positions that we had up there conducting overwatch, uh, you know, we're staying vigilant, I guess, for lack of a better term. Okay. Um, and we started taking fire from the east, northeast. And that's when, you know, the rest of the platoon, my platoon, started making their way up to different positions that we had set up on top of that building on top of those buildings and started engaging the enemy. Um, and then it kind of started, started working, like I said, from the East to the Northeast to the North Northwest, and then over to the West and kind of fluctuated back. And that probably went on for about, about good, maybe hour, hour and a half that we were taking some form of contact. I mean, it would ebb and flow, whether it was heavy or whether it was light or sporadic. It was probably about an hour, hour and a half, um, in which case all work on the JSS stopped. Um, what kind of fire? Most just small arms. Okay. Um, and could you see, I mean, was there, did they have cover or at least concealment? Could you see where it was coming from? So the way that, so what they had was part of the village of Macor was almost kind of like in a, crescent type shape kind of surrounding the uh that school uh complex we were in and there's probably about about three three to three to four hundred fifty meter standoff which was just flat between us and the village so and then you know there was sporadic wadis that were in and around the building so initially it was hard to determine where they were at just based off all the buildings that they were able to use. So mm -hmm. we found, we were able to identify in wadis uh, around that village, you know, some were, were in buildings, you know, at the same time. Cause I mean, at that time, you know, you know, it was a very different ROE. Well, 
I shouldn't say very different ROE. And, you know, the ROE was, you know, we had to be very, very careful about, you know, how we operated in and around a village. Yeah. Uh, which made it, you know, a little bit more complicated in the sense of trying to figure out exactly where, you know, these people were at. Um, but I mean, you know, especially as it started getting dark, um, it made it very, it made it a lot easier, you know, to start distinguishing, you know, m actual muzzle flashes from, you know, a glare of this or what have you. Okay. So how long did you say the fire continued? If I recall, it was probably about an hour, maybe, maybe an hour and a half. Um, and then it just broke off and, you know, it was dark by that point. Um, and was pretty essentially quiet throughout the night. Um, and at that point was when we pushed out, um, we pushed out a team to the east and to the west, um, to a recon team to the east and to the west along the, so we, we use, we utilized the wadi that was to the south of us to kind of maneuver to maneuver around and then push up the the wadis that were going into the villages just trying to get overwatch on different places that either we knew we were taking fire from that you know that day or the night prior or not the night prior excuse me but uh that we knew that we were taking um on the day and, and areas that we suspected that fire was coming from to see if we could see any movement if there was any you know they were bringing people in, they were taking people out, you know, just kind of see what was happening. Okay. Um, I know like for myself and, you know, the other team leaders that went out, I mean, we kind of had, cause I mean, we still had that entire, that entire company, uh, from 216 that was at the site with us, uh, in the buildings below where we were that, you know, we figured, well, we have them here, you know, based off of what had happened the day before, you know, we kind of wanted to stay out in those positions throughout the day just to see if, you know, something else was going to happen the next day. But I mean, for whatever reason, uh, they sent us out and then as dawn was starting to break was, was when we broke down and we came back to that school complex. Okay. And then did you, so this is, so now we're on the morning of the 12th. Yep. Um, and what was that day? Like, was it the same as the day before? Did you end up taking fire again? We, so throughout the morning up until about, it was, like, it was either five or, or 17 or 1800. I can't remember the exact time, but the most of the day was just a regular day we pulled guard nothing really happened in the sense of any significant enemy activity um you know, started working on the jss again but uh this time as we we're starting to get towards you know what we call dinner time roughly about four or sixteen hundred was when the commander that we were working with um essentially put us in, put the platoon onto a stand to up in the positions that we were fighting from the next, the day prior. Um, and then like I said, you know, we were up there, we were in position and we were essentially going to stay there until it got dark, but around, like I said, it was either 17, between 17 and 1800 was when the fighters from the day before initiated on us again, only this time, instead of initiating with small arms fire, the initial, um, attack, if you will, started as a shot of recoilless rifle at us that hit the, hit the Northern part of the Eastern facing building. Okay. Um, and what's that, what's sort of that moment? Like, um, you know, how long does it take to realize, what it is that it's a recoilless rifle and you know, for everybody to sort of kick into gear. And then what do you do? So, I mean, for, for me at that time, um, I had just come back from the Western facing building to check on one of my teams that was over there. And I was on the, the building that was facing to the North talking to my platoon leader 
And, you know, I remember hearing the, the round, the sound of the round coming in. Um, and the next thing I knew was, you know, you had the, the boom of the round hitting the side of the building. And, you know, I was probably, cause I mean, I got knocked on my back when that happened. And I was a little dazed for a couple of seconds before, you know, I kind of shook my head out of it. Um, so for me, I mean, you know, I had a couple of seconds where I guess, you know, lack of a better term, I had my bell rung, um, before I shook it off. Uh, and, and, you know, after that, I, I knew what was going on. And, um, one of, uh, the assistant team leaders who had been in vicinity was still on the ground. I remember moving over to him because by this time, everybody else was starting to ID targets and start to re, you know, to engage them, if you will. Um, I went over to him to make sure he was okay. I mean, he was kind of in the same state where he, you know, he was extremely dazed. He was closer to the blast than I was. He was extremely dazed, kind of got him back to coherency, if you will, and pushed him off to where his position was, uh, looked over, I mean, see how my PO was doing. And he was it by that time he was working with the FO that we had to try to identify targets, uh, see what assets we had available. Um, and then I started moving over to the center of the Northern building where I had been the day before with, uh, one of our machine guns. And initially was kind of took charge of that part of the perimeter because that was my responsibility at that point um, to direct fire with the gun. And then, you know, with the other positions that were along that along, along that roof. Uh, and that was probably the first 10, 15, 20 minutes that kind of continued in that manner. Okay. And uh, how much more intense was the fire than the day prior? So it started off extreme. It started off extremely intense, um, and then it died down for about. Because I, I think at that point they were starting to move to another position to reengage us, and it started dying down a little bit. Um, and we were taking stock. Uh, and at that point, my platoon sergeant had been up on the building. Um, but he went back down to start working resupply for ammunition for us up on the roof. Uh, and that's when it picked up again. So probably about 30, 35 minutes after the initial um, attack, it started intensifying a lot more. Uh, at that point, because he, he told me he was going out and start um, working that piece. And so he handed off kind of his portion of, you know, controlling the, of helping the PO control the fight up there over to me. And I transitioned to my, one of the other recon team leaders who was on my portion of the perimeter. I handed it off with him, you know, went back to Lincoln with PL, see what the situation he was getting, what we had going on. Um, and started trying to figure out what we had up there supply wise to start, uh, divvying out, you know, rounds to which positions were, were going to need it. Um, and it must, you know, shortly after that was when one of my senior snipers, uh, got hit. Um, cause I remember I was looking over at the corner of my eye, when I was, you know, from my peripheral when I was talking to platoon leader about what assets that he was trying to work to get on station for us when i saw him go down and our medic you know crawled over to him started trying to provide care but i mean honestly he was you know he was he was gone before he hit the ground um so at that point i got over there with the medic and started working to get him off the roof uh as well as start prepping you know start initiating, you know, uh, or at least prepping a nine line for when they would be able to, you know, call it in, which ended up 
all things told, at the end of the day, it turned, you know, just based off the amount of fire we were taking, it turned into a, a Kazovac by the quick reaction force, you know, a little bit later on in the night. Uh, I mean, really, at that point, you know, it kind of, once I was able to do that, um, you know, I went back and he was trying to help out my platoon leader when it came to the assets because he was, he had only been with the platoon for a short period of time. Um, he had, he had been, he had a rifle platoon prior to us deploying, but I mean, he had never had a chance to go through like, you know, the train up, uh, you know, live fires, uh, combat training center over in Hohenfels, Germany. You know, he, he didn't have a chance to do that with us before he came and, you know, he did a good job. I mean, he just, you know, um, he hadn't really had much experience with, a scout platoon before. So I went over to see what I could do, help him. Um, and then, you know, I started working on moving from position to position to try to, uh, resupply, um, you know, depending on what, where we were taking fire from, you know, cause I mean, a lot of kids, I mean, that was really for our platoon as a whole and individuals. I mean, that was really for, you know, a good, portion of them that was their first real engagement they'd ever been in so you know you had to kind of control that a little bit more to calm them down um so i mean essentially throughout the rest of the day i was moving position to position gathering up ammunition um both what we had already kind of stockpiled up there and what i was getting from the building below uh you know, talking to the, the mortar crew that we had down in the courtyard of the village. Um, and then, you know, again, going back and forth from position to the platoon leader check-in, seeing what he needed, uh, moving back to positions, you know, gathering ammo, taking it to where I knew it needed to go, you know, various things like that. And then all the time, you know, checking up on what was going to happen with you know, the casualty that we had taken, which we had one KIA, but at the same time, we also had, you know, a handful that were in close proximity, much closer than I was to that um, explosion that, you know, turned out to be late, you know, as they went and got evaluated, turned out to be, you know, TVI cases. But I mean, you could tell just, you know, by looking at them that, you know, something was not quite right. So, you know, sure trying to figure that piece out for the, the KIA we took, but also trying to figure out how I was going to get the other ones, you know, back to uh, roll one for initial treatment for that. Um, Cause if you know, they could do things on the ground, hand up ammo, but I mean, in the sense of just their mental state at the time after being near that round, I mean, some of them were, were pretty, you know, they certainly weren't fully coherent and I, you know, and for me at that time, I made the call just to keep them down there to keep shuttling ammunition to us. At this point, um, you know, from your vantage point, you're, uh, you're a section leader, but you're also, um, it sounds like kind of, uh, you know, helping out the PL in the way that a platoon sergeant would. Mm-hmm. Um, did it feel, did it feel like this was sort of a battle that was going to have a conclusive end one side was going to outmaneuver the other one or did it feel like it was just it was going to end when the taliban decided to stop firing so in that with that like it was a it, it, yeah it seemed like it was just we were going to we were just going to keep engaging you know, at targets that we could identify and engage until either we got assets on station to assist and to, you know, kill them from, you know, their vantage point, especially like the Apaches, or until the Taliban were just going to break it off for the night, which, um, quite honestly, is there were assets available at the time or late, you know, within a short time after we started taking contact that, you know, were originally, they were trying to push to us. Um, but for what, you know, for whatever reason, the, the company commander that we were attached to, uh, for whatever reason, he just kept denying them in the hopes that he was somehow going to draw the fighters out to an area where we could 
kill you know essentially kill them ourselves but you know throughout the vast majority of it i mean that company that was with us i mean really wasn't engaged i mean a good majority of them were in the buildings below us and you know the ones that could get to a position where they could fire were firing but i mean they just they weren't really attempting to maneuver on you know the people that were fighting us and i, and I to this day I, I still don't really know why he chose that route but eventually um especially when you know word got back to to my battalion that you know, we had lost somebody was when, you know, you know, from what I remember being told, you know, I wasn't there when the decisions were made, obviously, but from what I remember being told, our battalion commander essentially pushed those assets to us and, you know, was very direct that they will be utilized because we had, um, we had one five fives back at FOB warrior at the time we had attack aviation on station and i mean honestly we were probably fighting from like like i said anywhere between 1700 to about 2000 um because at that time was when you know attack aviation came on station and started engaging targets that they could identify um we were start we were starting to receive um able to call in indirect from the 155s and really at that time was when everything kind of ended um and then you know sure about an hour later after we got the initial wounded in the kai we took you know back to the roll one which is at cop mccor was when they exfilled the rest of my platoon um so i started working that piece um to get the rest of my, cause my platoon sergeant at that point had to go back with the, the other, you know, ones that were cases for TBI, um, initially. So I started working that piece with, you know, re, you know, reconsolidating the platoon and getting everybody seating the vehicles from the QRF platoon, uh, to exfil, uh, back to cop McCor. And what, what time was that? So I was probably around 2100, 2130 when we, when the, you know, we were in, in seats moving back down the road towards Cop McCor. Okay. Um, I want to ask you, you know, a couple of things that I kind of made note of as you were, as you were telling the story. Um, one of them was you described your, your platoon leader, who you said was, he wasn't, you know, brand new, but he was new to you. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he'd had a, I think you said a rifle platoon yep. before, um, before that, you know, obviously we talk all the time about how important that platoon leader platoon sergeant relationship is, how important it is for a, a platoon leader to be able to rely on, um, his or her NCOs. Mm-hmm. Um, was that, I mean, did you get the sense? Cause you kind of had two things going on. You had a platoon leader who was still relatively new to the platoon and you had soldiers who, as you said, were sort of, um, you know, you were trying to kind of keep them calm in a sense, um, you know, manage kind of, uh, maybe almost their emotions and, 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 and behavior because this was their first firefight. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of strikes me as it kind of shows two very important roles of NCOs. Um, you know, the, you know, for lack of a better phrase, kind of managing up and managing down with kind of one eye on your soldiers and another on the leaders that you're working with. Um, is that something that you felt was a particular strength, the NCOs within your platoon? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of that came from the fact that, you know, most of us, well, I mean, I shouldn't say most of it, like the, the staff sergeants, I mean, we were all, all three of us, you know, had been on, this was all our, our third deployment with the battalion. Um, you know, we'd all come because you, you know, you, you get to hand pick in, you know, generally you get to hand pick who is in the scout platoon and infantry battalion, you know, the first arm star major kind of get to hand pick that. So, I mean, we were all very, I would say experienced, um, you know, we'd been together for over the NCOs. I mean, we had, we had been together really since May of. 2011 so we all knew each other 
we knew our each other's strengths and weaknesses and you know we all we kind of had that that trust for that bond that trust in one of us and you know we kind of took it upon you know and given you know that experience and knowledge level that we had you know when we got that new platoon leader you know i mean we we worked very hard to try to get him as spun up as much as we could given the situation, you know? Um, cause I mean, I, to me personally, like, you know, whether you're a platoon sergeant or you're a staff sergeant or you're a sergeant, um, within a platoon, you know, yeah, you have your responsibility to, you know, take care of your soldiers, ensure they're, you know, trained, so on and so forth. But you also have a responsibility to ensure that, you know, you set your platoon leader up for success. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, especially, you know, whether that's a rifle platoon or that's a scout platoon, I mean, you're, you're getting a young officer that's been trained in doctrine, you know, they understand that piece of it, but they don't have the same level of experience. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what that platoon does or fails to do is ultimately going to fall on that platoon leader. And, you know, the guys that raised me, um, and I, I firmly believe that they were right in this said, you know, hey, if that platoon leader fails, then, you know, nine times, unless you just get a bad one, nine times out of 10, I mean, the NCOs in that platoon have just as much, you know, um, are, are just as much accountable for that failure as that platoon leader, because we're the ones that, you know, know from experience, what works, what doesn't. Um, if we let them fail, then, you know, that that's on us. Um, so I always try to, I try to keep that mindset and not just then, but, you know, since and before that, you know, I knew he was going to be okay. I mean, I knew he knew what he was supposed to do, but at the same time, you know, I was going to do everything I can, not just to take care of my soldiers, but to make sure that, you know, we didn't fail him. Yeah. You know, you also said, um, you know, I was struck by the fact that sort of night one, the night of September 10th, when you go in and you establish these positions to provide overwatch of the site in advance of the company coming in, uh, the next morning you're doing, you're doing your job. This is what a scout platoon does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the fighting sort of kicks off the next day and, and the subsequent day, um, you know, in a lot of ways, you, you know, obviously you're trained to, to fight, you're trained to, you know, to successfully conduct a firefight and to do all these things. Um, but you're being, you, you know, you're fighting almost more like a, like a rifle platoon would. Um, at the same time, you also mentioned, that when your platoon sergeant went down to kind of, you know, take stock of ammunition and to manage some things inside the building, you kind of seamlessly drifted into almost that role of being by the platoon leader's side. Um, how important, you know, both of those things, how important was it, uh, do you think, in advance of a deployment, especially during a train-up, to sort of cross-train and and to get comfortable doing things that are not, you know, your maybe sort of doctrinal job and to take roles within your unit that maybe are not your, you know, the role that you are nominally in. Um, well, I think, you know, honestly, that's probably one of the most important things you can do prior to going to, a on a deployment on a combat mission. I mean, cause you, you don't know what is going to happen. You know, you, you don't, you know, you can hope for, what's going to happen. But I mean, you, you don't know what is going to happen. I mean, you know, we could have lost the platoon leader that day, or we could have lost, you know, two of our other staff sergeants that day, or, you know, we could have lost a machine gunner, but you know, if, if you don't have people that are trained to be able to react to that and assume those roles, so you can continue with, you know, the mission or, you know, depending on what the situation is, the initiative, I mean, you're, you're apt to fail. Um, and, you know, for us in that platoon, I mean, it was kind of distinct, you know, we were kind of, we, we train in the sense that, you know, 
we, we understood each other's jobs and then, you know, we started identifying like a success, you know, like succession. And then, you know, we train on that. So, you know, prior to that deployment, I mean, I got training reps, um, because my platoon sergeant was at a school, you know, a couple months prior to, you know, so I, I was running as a platoon sergeant, both in garrison and then in a training event. Um, when we were at the CTC at Hohenfeld, Hohenfeld, excuse me, um, I did a rep for a battalion mission where I was the acting platoon leader. Um, cause the, the platoon leader was, he got called off to, to essentially work as an acting ex as an acting XO and the platoon sergeant was off doing a task to do something else. So, I mean, I was essentially running as a platoon leader for, you know, that, that mission set that the battalion was doing. And I mean, I'll tell you like having that, that ability to do that kind of cross training when, you know, when this event happened, you know, it wasn't even like it was, you know, it was like second nature. I just pushed myself to where I saw that, you know, I could best be utilized or, you know, moving to points of friction, if you will, um, to best be utilized to help the platoon be successful, you know? And like when I left, you know, that perimeter that I was responsible for. And I took over for essentially our platoon sergeant, my, my buddy, the other, the recon team leader that was up there with me. I mean, that wasn't even like a conversation we just had to have. I mean, we, he naturally moved to where I was supposed to be. And I naturally moved over where the platoon sergeant was supposed to be. We could continue fighting without really a break or having to like try to figure things out while every, all this other chaos is going on. So, I mean, um, you know, that is, that is one of the most important things I think you can do. Uh, and I think that just comes for, you know, I mean, I've been up until I came to West Point, I have been in the airborne community my entire life. And I mean, that has always been kind of like a, a second nature kind of thing for us. Cause I mean, we have what we have when we jump in and you have to know everybody else's job. You have no units to your left and right's mission, you know, as well as yours, because you never know what's going to happen when you hit a drop zone. Um, so I think for us, I mean, that was just kind of came as a natural training progression for us. Well, Master and Hall, thank you very much um, for taking some time out of your schedule and, and sharing the story and some of the, the kind of lessons on it. It, it is, uh, there's some, some especially, I think, insightful ones on, um, on what it means to be an NCO and a leader um, that I think uh, some of our listeners will really appreciate. So thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.